Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, this is the Delicious Legacy Podcast, and I'm your host, Thomas Dinas. Welcome back for another archaeogastronomical adventure. But before we start, have a listen to this. Hello there, sorry to interrupt. My name's Dr. Neil Buttery, and I'm host of the British Food History Podcast, a podcast that you, as a fan of the Delicious Legacy, might be interested in. I explore British food and its history in all its glory, with interviews with special guests, recipes, reenactments, and tracking down forgotten recipes and hyper-regional specialities. Previous topics include medieval eels, 18th century dining, curry, London street food sellers, breakfast, and the good old Yorkshire pudding. Search for the British Food History Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the delicious legacy. Cheers! Since starting this podcast over two years ago now, I've covered many, many topics from the ancient world. But I never venture in great detail in Indian's past to examine her vast, rich cuisine and history in any detail. Of course, we've seen and we know the ancient Greeks and Romans had trade networks inland and on sea that stretched to the Indian subcontinent and there was a complex and interconnected commerce of spices, of many expensive ingredients used in the ancient Greek and Roman cuisine, chiefly amongst them pepper, black and long pepper, but also cinnamon and ginger and various others. Some of the world's earliest civilizations rose and fell in the Indian subcontinent long before the Greeks wrote and spread their Homeric epics. But what do we know of the Indian culinary history? What do we know of their foods and ancient recipes? Did the complex mix of religions over the millennia, and especially with Hinduism and later Buddhism, play a significant role in the diet of the people? Have many things survived? What's the lineage that connects the past inhabitants of this vast land to the present day? 
Many of our staples today and some of the most popular vegetables and fruits have their origins in India. Take cucumbers and aubergines for example, and also mangoes. Sugar from sugarcane first is mentioned in ancient India around 1000 BCE. As we've seen in the episode of uh, the podcast uh, with Dr. Neil Buttry a couple of months ago. For those of us in London, and of course uh, the countless hordes of tourists that uh, descend down on London's East End, when we think of Indian food, our mind first comes to the curry houses of uh, Brick Lane. Of course, there used to be a lot more um, Indian restaurants on that street, on Brick Lane, but nowadays it's a mixture of all sorts of different things. But going back to the early history after World War II, uh, that area was full of um, what we call curry houses, Indian food restaurants, which, um, which served the food that it was very new and exciting to most uh, British people by then. And rightly or wrongly, we associate Indian food with uh, that very specific thing, curry, curry houses, curry restaurants. But who knows that this particular type of food was a kind of mixture and an interpretation of uh, what uh, the Anglo-Indians ate in India, but interpreted through the eyes of uh, Bangladeshi seamen who settled in London's East End. Anyway, that's uh, one fascinating aspect of the history of Indian food, which we are going to explore right now. Well, I'm very happy to say that I have a very esteemed guest on today's episode to talk to us about many aspects of the complex and often misunderstood cuisine. And so off I went, one rainy and cold January afternoon, to the British Library to talk about some aspects of the long history of Indian food. Today's episode will be a short introduction to the world of Indian cooking and I hope in the near future to explore a lot more in depth and detail the fragrant, sweet and savoury character of the food from ancient times till the modern age of spice trade with the English, Portuguese and Dutch. So let's welcome on this episode the author of The Philosophy of Curry, Sergel Sokhtuwala. Well, Sergel, welcome to the Delicious Legacy podcast. Thank you. So it's nice to be here. Tell us a little bit about um, yourself, uh, your culinary adventures and your past and about uh, your book. Right. Yeah, I've been writing about food for more than uh, 20 years. For me, it's a second profession because I used to work in the mental health profession with various mental health charities. And that's because I did a degree in psychology. So I kind of fell into that line of work, but it didn't really work out for me. I didn't enjoy it. So I switched professions about 20 years ago and I started writing about food. And I mainly write for UK-based publications like newspapers, magazines, websites. But I do write occasionally for American and Indian publications as well. I write mainly about either food history, especially Indian food history or British food history, or London restaurants. And sometimes I write about different vegetarian cuisines from around the world, being a vegetarian myself. So it's quite a broad sort of uh, remit. And um, the book came about because uh, the British Library got in touch with me out of the blue about two years ago. 
and they asked me to write a book as part of um, the philosophy series, which includes other titles as well. Like there are books uh, on um, the philosophy of tea, coffee, gin, whiskey, beer, wine, and so on. And uh, they asked me if I want to write about the philosophy of curry. And um, at first I thought, well, you know, just because I'm Indian, they're stereotyping me. And at first I was thinking, well, no, you know, because why should I write about curry just because I'm Indian? And then I realized that, you know, they needed someone to write about curry and they were actually making an effort to find an Indian origin writer. And I was really impressed by that. And although, I mean, my knowledge was quite broad ranging, I didn't have in-depth knowledge about the topic, so I had to research. And eventually I said yes. And I really, really enjoyed working on the book. The British Library have been really fabulous to work with. I had a brilliant editor. And you know, for my first book, I couldn't have asked for anything better. Um, it was a really, really good experience. I really enjoyed writing it. And I hope people enjoy reading it as much as I enjoyed writing it. Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it a lot. I thought it was a marvellous book. And, Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I read it twice now. Oh, wow, really? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. And, to tell to our listeners, we are in the British Library now doing this uh, yeah. interview. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing environment. I just... So inspiring. It's lovely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's really inspiring. It's centrally located. It's, you get people from all around the world, you know, coming, coming here. And uh, yeah, it's just a really nice place to be in, I think. And home away from home. I was thinking as I was walking in. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So... Sejal, uh, we, uh, on the Delicious Legacy podcast now, we are exploring all these different ancient cuisines. Yeah. And um, so far, we haven't, we haven't explored um, the Indian cuisine. So today, I would like um, to touch a little bit about the history of Indian food, the culture and all that stuff that um, so many of us here in the West, uh, we don't know about. We just have a generic term <laughs> mm -hmm. about your food, and that's all we know. Yeah. So you, as uh, the author of The Philosophy of Curry, um, which is an excellent and informative book, as Thank we you. said. Yeah. <laughs> I want to explain a little bit more about, about the Indian food, because we just use the word curry, and yet that's a very generic uh, catch-all term, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. I mean, it, it's like a shorthand for instead of using the term Indian food or Indian cuisine, people just say curry. That's supposed to mean Indian food. Mm. It's so synonymous with Indian food. There are two problems with that. You know, firstly, yeah, it reduces Indian cuisine to this, you know, one term. Uh, and there's a lot more to Indian food. You know, there's like, there's rice and dal, which are you know, really like rice, dal and roti. They're the three kind of most important things for Indian people. There are different subsies, which is, you know, side vegetable dishes. And of course, yeah, there's curries, there's pickles, pancakes, there's uh, even, you know, noodles. Uh, there's lots of mitai, which is sweets, and there's lots, lots and lots of different snacks and street foods. There's pancakes, there's, you know, all kinds of different things. And it's just reduced to this one term, curry. But the other thing as well is that curries can be found in different countries around the world as well. And there are people who've read my book and they've said, oh, I just thought it was going to be about Indian curries. And I was really surprised when you started talking about international curries. So, you know, you can find curries in other parts of the world as well. And uh, it's not just to do with Indian food. Absolutely. And actually, yeah. they're really popular in other countries, especially I've had so many readers writing to me from Japan you know, Jap in Japan, curries are really popular and Japanese readers have really taken to the book. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was really surprised and I was, I was really flattered, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I just so love cool. all things Japanese, so <laughs> I, was really, I was really pleased about that. <laughs> Great. Fantastic. So, 
to kickstart our um, exploration of Indian cuisine. Maybe could you touch a little bit about the origin of the word curry? Because I know it can be a very misleading term, but what did that word we use here in the West came from? Yeah, there are all, all kinds of mythical ideas about, you know, what the roots of the word is. Like someone said to me that they think, you know, it comes from the name of a British colonial called Mr. Curry and he loved Indian food and, you know, and why should we name our dish after him and, you know, that kind of thing. But actually it comes from Tamil word curry and that word means different things. It means uh, the colour black. It also yeah. means pepper, like black pepper which was used and actually still is used quite extensively in South Indian cooking. And any dishes in, you know, in ancient South India, any, any dish with black pepper was prefixed with the word curry, or curry rather, uh, it's yeah. pronounced curry. And the Portuguese took that word and then they used it to apply it to a range of, you know, Indian dishes with gravy. So there were, you know, there were like sambas and rasam, which are like broth-like dishes, either thin broth or thick broth, made with lentils or legumes and spices. And um, because they're eaten with rice, they just use its catch-all term curry. So that's how, you know, the word came about. But it, it does have Indian origin but it was used by the Portuguese uh, as this kind of category of dishes. Yeah. Basically, you know, any kind of legumes or vegetables or meat or fish or chicken or paneer cooked in a gravy with spices. So they use that term for, you know, to mean, you know, dishes cooked in gravy. And, um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, basically it just means, you know, either the color black or black pepper. How interesting. Traditionally, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. So obviously, we mentioned that uh, India is a huge country. Yeah. It's absolutely massive and big population as well. And if we include uh, Nepal and Bangladesh and Pakistan, all this Indian subcontinent, we have a massive area. So not everybody is the same thing. And no, there's right. so many different yeah. cuisines, completely different from each other. So yeah, the word curry, even, even if it was an Indian food per se, it would be very redundant. They can't describe all the sorts of things that are happening across across this huge area, this vast area. Yeah, no, that's right, yeah, because I mean, there are so many words for curry uh, or curry-like dishes in, in India, you know, depending on which region you're from. So like, I'm, I'm Gujarati and we call curries, you know, we call them shak. Mm -hmm. If you're Punjabi, you'd call them sabzi. Now, dal is not, personally, you know, I think it's a different category, so it's not curry. Then there's another dish made with yogurt as a base, and that's called kadi. So, there, I mean, there, well, firstly, there are curry-like uh, words in different Indian languages, like kura, tarkari, there's uh, upkari, you know, and they all kind of basically mean curry. But there are also different words like, um, like I said, shark and sabzi. There's also salan, which is used in Hyderabad, and basically mm. that means curry. There's toran in South India, which also means curry. So there are all these different words used, you know, for specific dishes in different regions of India and in Bangladesh, as you said, and in Pakistan as well. But um, curry is a generic term which has been used. But I mean, in, in India, I would say, you know, that curry is used for North Indian style restaurant curries. Mm because historically uh, North India is where the restaurants as we know them now originated. So North Indian dishes cooked in a gravy are called curries. And also the other word which is used instead of curry in India quite a lot is masala, 
So okay. instead of saying chickpea curry, you would say chickpea masala. Instead of okra curry, it would be okra masala and so on. But people, you know, in India, they do use the word curry. I mean, it comes from uh, Anglo-Indian yeah, times. of course. And it is still used yeah. by many Indians, but not all Indians. And there are some Indian people who have said to me, oh, you know, we didn't use that word when I was growing up, so I don't even know what it means. <laughs> Incidentally, you said um, the Punjabi used the word sabzi? Sabzi, yeah, that's right. Is it Persian origin that has um, Persian? No, yeah, because in, I know in, in Persian language, sabzi means, um, I think, vegetables. Ah, right. Okay. Or I think, or I've seen that word being used in, yeah, in yeah. Uh, Persian cookbooks and restaurant menus. I'm not sure, actually. I mean, it could be, yeah, from Mughlai, Times. Yeah, could be. Yeah, yeah it's possible. Because there is an influence in... Uh, yeah, definitely. In North, North Indian cooking, there's a Persian influence in Mughlai cooking and North Indian cooking generally. Yeah, maybe you can tell us a bit about that, if you... If you, if you yeah, have. sure. Well, the first Mughal emperor who invaded India in 16th century, he, Babur, his name was Babur, and he started introducing lots of Persian influences from Persian kitchen. So, for instance, marinating meat in a yogurt before cooking it right. in order to tenderize it. Then mincing meat, you know, because uh, it, to make it soft and tender. Yeah. So keema comes from, you know, that's a Persian influence. Then using fruit in curries. So fruit and spices, you know, using that sweet, sweet and spicy mix of flavors. Right, right. That's a Persian influence. Oh, wow, okay. Using ground almonds or even almonds, you know, almond flakes or almonds in curries, that's a Persian to influence. To thicken the sauces and stuff. Yeah, in yeah. sauces, yeah. So that's a Persian influence as well. So there are, yeah, and you know, like using fragrant things like rose petals or rose water, again, that's a Persian mm, influence. Mm. So yeah, lots of curries, for instance, restaurant curries that we know in Britain, they have Persian origins initially. Mm. Lakoma, you know, that's Persian origin curry and uh, pasanda and you know so there are quite a few Ooh, different curries okay. which which have Persian origin and then they were adapted by North Indians and what happened was uh, the Persian influence came from Mughal emperors and then Indian cooks added you know Indian spices or Indian flavorings so Indian spices tamarind coconut, cashew nuts, and so on. Uh -huh, so uh -huh. then the two influences kind of merged and then, you know, Mughlai cuisine was born. Was born like yeah. in the 16th century, did you say? Yeah, yeah, around 16th century, but it became more kind of refined, I would say in the 17th century, but it was, it was the, the earliest Mughlai cuisine was, yeah, 16th century. Brilliant, brilliant, thanks. So if we go back in time, if we try and trace some, uh, some early origins of Indian food and Indian dishes and mm -hmm. what did, what, do you have any evidence, either written or archaeological, of uh, what, did, what did the early Indian people, what were yeah. the staple foods basically of people, and mm. if there's any recipes surviving from thousands of years ago? Yeah, yeah, I mean, there are so many, first of all, you know, curry recipes mentioned in Mahabharata and ancient scriptures, and there's lots of archaeological evidence and evidence in, uh, like, old scriptures. Mm -hmm. in ancient Indian books mention food quite a lot, and there are lots of, like, travellers, books as well, books written by travellers from Greece and from China and from Europe, which mention ancient Indian food as well. Mm. But yeah, there's plenty of um, evidence of, you know, what was eaten in ancient India. And firstly, there was a lot of meat eaten and the whole animal was eaten. So, you know, nose to, nose to tail eating was yeah. quite common. There was um, lots of vegetables like aubergines and tubers, not potatoes, but tubers like yams and colocasia and there were gourds, you know, lots of like different types of gourds and squashes were used quite yeah, a lot. Yeah. There were 
legumes and rice and not so much wheat but I would say barley and millet mm. were used okay. were eaten quite a lot lots of gruel you know like barley and millet were co combined with either water or yogurt or milk and they were eaten like porridge mm. either sweet or savory lots of spices and herbs such as uh, for instance black pepper yes black pepper long pepper cubeb pepper uh, fresh and dried ginger mustard i mean uh, before the arrival of chilies in the 16th century there was um, heat was achieved by combination of fresh and dried ginger mustard and different types of um, peppercorns yeah. uh, black pepper and white pepper java pepper long pepper you know these were used to achieve heat and then chilies were introduced in the in the 16th century and um, kind of substituted the peppers in a way for the spiciness yeah, I mean, I think it's, especially in South India, people were, Indians were used to hot, you know, like hot dishes, mm. but the heat came from peppercorns. Mm. So South Indians were the first to embrace chilies very enthusiastically, <laughs> and then it spread to the rest of India. Right. But, you know, chilies, we, we associate chilies with Indian food, you know, they're so synonymous with Indian food, but they're, they're not traditional, you know, mm. I mean, they only came as recently as the uh, 16th century. So it's really hard to imagine Indian food what it was like before, but it, I mean, it was still hot. Mm, um, it was kind of more balanced in terms of, you know, there were different, there were other spices used as well, like nutmeg, there was cardamom, there was Indian cassia, which yes. is um, leaves of uh, cinnamon tree. Right, how do they taste? Um, they taste similar to bay leaves. Um, oh, right. They taste between cinnamon and bay leaves, you know, it's right. the kind okay. of, yeah, so they're quite fragrant, yeah, fragrant, quite strong. Yeah, okay, nice. <laughs> Cloves and cinnamon, I think, came from Indonesia. Mm. They came to India quite early, so they were used in early Indian recipes and Mughlai recipes as well. Of course. But the, yeah, there were lots of spices used and herbs, including holy basil. There was lots of garlic. I think onions came mostly with Mughals. You know, they started using right. onions quite enthusiastically. And, so they came with Mughlai cooking. And before tomatoes were introduced in the 18th century, sour flavours were, were achieved with uh, the use of tamarind, lemon juice, pomegranate juice, of raw green mangoes and dried raw green mangoes and dried raw green mango powder as well. Right, okay. So these were used you know, as souring agents and then tomatoes were introduced initially for the use of like the British in India and then they were they started being embraced by Bengalis mm. and then the rest of India and potatoes were new as well you know they were introduced by um, either the British or the Dutch in 18th century but before that there was a prolific use of tubers like colocasia and purple yam and elephant yam and you know all these different kinds of yams which are still widely used in mm. Indian cooking mm. today. Of course. So initially, you know, Indians were really skeptical of potatoes because according to Ayurveda, because so much Indian food is like, I would say, you know, traditional Indian food was kind of dictated by Ayurvedic principles. So Ayurveda was skeptical about potatoes, you know, believing them to cause indigestion. Mm -hmm. Then they started becoming very popular. But I would say, yeah, I mean, that ancient Indian food was, like I said, you know, it was um, determined by Ayurvedic principles of what's hot and cold foods are, you know, so what's good for your body. Right. What, like, for instance, if you used, if you cooked with beans in order to, like, prevent wind, you know, you'd, you'd cook your beans with asafoetida. So that's, that's still, you know, the a way. trick which is used yeah. today. So, yeah, I mean, there are different things, you know, different ways you'd kind of combine foods mm -hmm. 
to make sure that they were good for your body. And also things like, you know, like in winter, I mean, there's a whole genre of cooking, which is, you know, winter warmer food, which is, you know, nourishing food, which keep your body warm during winter months. Then apart from Ayurveda, there's um, also principles of like rasa and six flavors. So there's um, sweet, sour, hot, pungent, astringent and bitter. Right. So these are the six flavors, you know, which are used in Indian, Indian food. So yeah, they're all, the, and also, you know, there were kind of elaborate doctrines on things like, you know, pure and impure foods and raw and cooked foods. And, but, you know, by raw and cooked foods, it just meant that if a food was considered to be cooked, it should contain water and ghee and milk. Otherwise, it would be raw. It was considered to be raw. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So there are all these kind of you know different ancient principles yeah. and yeah, you paint a very extensive and complicated picture of um, rules and ways of cooking and methods. And yeah. Yeah. Really complex. Really complex, basically. Yeah, yeah. but it was a very complex and sophisticated uh, cuisine, and I think it's one of the ancient cuisines because so many cuisines are like rooted in, you know, like modern techniques and but I think this is one of the most ancient and sophisticated cuisines. And of course, until today, I mean, the Indian cooks, the way they mix the spices, although we know about the peppers and the ginger and all the stuff since ancient times, so it was a huge trade with uh, the Mediterranean, mm. with ancient Greeks and Romans. They yeah. used to import tons and tons of black pepper and long pepper. Yeah, that's and, right. Um, other spices from India. But yeah, I think um, we don't use them so wisely as the Indians to no, the full extent. Think, yeah, no, I think, I think it takes um, lots of practice. And I think, you know, if you're brought up with, with the food, I think, I think it takes what we call in India, you know, a good hand to kind of understand, you know, the mixing of spices. And I think it's a kind of ancient art, really, you know, and I think it's something you learn and something you develop the more you cook the food. Yeah. And this is the thing that, you know, when Anglo-Indians, when the British came to India, they found the cuisine really complex. Right. Uh, and it was too complex for the taste and it was too complex in terms of cooking. So they simplified the recipes and they simplified the spicing and they ended up inventing curry powder. So curry powder comes from British cook having invented, you know, because they thought, you know, like, grinding and roasting and mixing individual spices was just too complicated and it was too, the spices were too pungent for the uh. taste. <laughs> so they, they just used, you know, a few kind of, um, I don't know, just random, because, <laughs> you know, there's no such thing as authentic curry powder. I mean, it's just a random mix of spices. Yeah, really. yeah, yeah. And they must have, I mean, I'm sure, you know, they, they must have kind of mixed and mashed according to their taste and arrived at, you know, mm. recipes that worked for them. Um, but there's no such thing as like traditional curry powder. I mean, it, personally, I think it's completely random, random mix and anything goes. Great. <laughs> and actually, I read an article about curry powder and garam masala and someone was saying, what's uh, stopping someone from calling mulled wine spices curry powder, you know, garam masala? Because it's basically just mixed with like yeah, Indian yeah, spices, yeah, really. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> more so, yeah, globe, so yeah. it's basically garam masala, garam masala wine you're drinking. <laughs> Or curry powder wine you're drinking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so I mean, you know, these recipes were simplified, and but yeah, it is very complex. But you know, I don't want to make it sound like it's anything mystical that mm. people can't achieve. I mean, if you cook Indian food regularly, and if you kind of get to a stage where you you start mixing the spices according to your taste. But the, yeah, the, the balance of spices, yeah, you can achieve that by cooking every day, and of course having good spices, fresh spices, right? That's another secret which 
That's right, yeah. I think, yeah, you need to use really good quality spices sourced from, you know, good spice merchants. Don't keep them in your cupboards for too long. Use them while they're, you know, while they're still fresh because otherwise spices can go rancid. Right. There are oils and spices which can go rancid and then, you know, you'll really notice a difference if you use old spices and, you know, new fresh, yeah. freshly brought spices. And also, you know, use them judiciously because, I mean, I find the use in, like, if someone is, someone who's non-Indian is doing Indian recipes, for instance, I find the use of spices really kind of random. Like, you know, you'd right. get pulao rice with two tablespoons of turmeric, which no one, I mean, no oh. Indian cook would pulao rice with two tablespoons of turmeric. You know, that's Lots. a lot, yeah. yeah, yeah. So just things like that, you know, and um, I just, I don't know, you just need to be a bit more, be a bit more careful with the use of spices. You know, you don't need to put loads mm, of spices mm, in. Yeah. But that's the other thing, you know, lots of Indian food, I find modern Indian food, or contemporary Indian food, even home-cooked food, is getting very masala-fied. So there's, you know, more and more, spices are being used more and more and more and more randomly. And in India, in 20th century, there was less use of spices. Mm. Uh, there was a more kind of nuanced use of spices. And I just think, you know, everything is becoming overspiced in a way. Yeah. And there were more kind of nuanced and more subtle flavors. So Indian food doesn't have to be all spicy. Yeah. Some of the dishes are quite mild or they're quite subtly, you know, subtly spiced. Whereas what you get these days in restaurants and actually even home cooking is just this uh, indiscriminate use of spices. And it's just like, yeah, it's just like one dimensional. And that really worries me because I think, you know, real Indian food or how it was cooked, you know, even like I would say 20 years ago, it was just a lot more nuanced, a lot more three-dimensional. Mm -hmm. So I'm a bit worried about overuse of spices actually. <laughs> But I love spices, so especially in, um, I think in snacks, they work really well, street yeah, foods. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you with the welcome support of Malbin Greek, UK's leading Greek delicatessen, supplier and distributor of premium Greek produce. Whatever you need, Malbin Greek has you covered. You can shop online and have the divine and delicious goods delivered to your doorstep across the UK, or you can visit the shop at Art17 Apollo Business Park, Lucy Way, SC16, 4ET, Bermondsey, London, Malby and Greek, the one-stop shop for your Greek fix. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Moving on through the ages and the centuries, and we, we talked about uh, uh, the Mongols and, the, and that. So after that, we have the first wave of... Um, Colonialism, the, so North Europeans come in, in contact with uh, the Indian subcontinent. We have Portuguese and we have Dutch and English. Who were the first that started um, the whole spice trade? And, and Yeah, it was the Portuguese who came to India first, you know, in the 15th century. Well, they came looking for pepper and spices and uh, they established the earliest colonies. That was uh, Vasco da Gama and then he went back. Portugal, and then he came back, you know, with, with his crew. Mm. So Portuguese were the first colonials, and then the British found a direct route, and then the British came, and the Dutch came, and I mean, the Dutch didn't come to India, but you know, the, yeah. I mean, the British and the Dutch also found um, direct routes to the spice mm. trade. But the Portuguese were the first. Did they leave um, some mark on the food, um, the Portuguese, some in the Indian food? Yeah, they did in Goa. Actually, yeah, they established colony in Eastern India as well. In Goa, uh, you know, Vindaloo comes from Portuguese pork preserved in wine and uh-huh. wine vinegar and right. was preserved in barrels by Portuguese uh, sailors. Yeah. So, and had, it had garlic in it for preservative. So that's the origin of Vindaloo. Uh-huh. Oh, and then they added spices, you know, like peppercorns mm-hmm. and cumin and coriander and so on. And then when chilies were introduced to India in, in, in 16th century, they added, they, I mean, Portuguese loved the chilies. So they got, I think, a little bit carried away and added like lots of chilies. So Vindaloo became a very hot curry. Right. And it also had uh, tamarind and so on added by local, you know, like Goans Go- right. adapted it. So Vindaloo is a very, you know, very famous example of um, Portuguese influence on Goan cooking. But lots of Goan cooking is influenced by Portuguese, I mean, Goan Christian cooking is influenced by Portuguese cooking, like lots of seafood curries and cakes. There are lots of cakes and there are breads, Portuguese introduced bread as well to that part of India. And then they set up bakeries and the British introduced bread to the rest of India as well. Then the Portuguese also in Eastern India, they introduced, I mean, it's said, I mean, there are various theories around Indian, should I say Bengali Mithai, mm-hmm. And Bengali Mithai is based on uh, what's called chena, which is the loose curds of paneer. Paneer is an Indian cheese, which is made by, you know, curdling milk. And you just, you know, once you drain off the the whey, you're left with loose, you know, milk curds. And that's used for making Mithai. And Mithai in Bengali is called mishti. So the mishti is often made from paneer. And it is said that the technique of curdling milk which had been taboo in India since the Aryan times, since the Indus Valley civilization, because, you know, cows are really highly, like, revered. So if cows produce milk, you're not supposed to break the milk 
uh, or destroy the milk by curdling it, by add, adding any acid to it. So that was taboo for many centuries. Then the Portuguese came along and introduced this technique of br breaking the milk yeah. by adding acid, like lemon juice or something, like, yeah. or vinegar or something, and then you end up with these uh, you know, milk curds. I mean, it's controversial. You know, Some people say that actually in ancient in Indian scriptures, there are milk curds mentioned, so it's not the Portuguese, but then there are the other people who insist that Portuguese introduce, mm, mm. or rather maybe reintroduce that technique of making milk curds. And then they started being used in Bengali cooking, but especially in Mithai, in Mishti, in Mishti making. And Bengali sweets are really, really famous. I mean, Bengali sweets are to India what fine French patisserie is to Europe, basically, <laughs> yeah. So the Portuguese had a huge influence in, and actually, you know, kind of, I think a little understood or underrated influence. I think everyone knows about, you know, like, not everyone, but many people know about, you know, the influence on Goan food, on the origins of Vindaloo, but not many people know that actually they influenced Mithai making or Mishti making in Bengal as well. Brilliant, that's yeah. interesting, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think all colonials, I mean, you know, the British had a huge influence as well on Indian cooking. So lots of um, chops and sandwiches and even some curries like railway curry and something called country captain these all have you know like anglo-indian british yeah, origins yeah, and even you know this uh, there's, there's this kind of idea that mughlai curries or actually any like if you go to india you know there's this generic mix of vegetables used which is like potatoes carrots peas green beans and cauliflower and these are called, you know, mixed vegetables, which you find in frozen sections in supermarkets. But, you know, these mixed vegetables are just really commonplace in Indian curries, in Indian pilaus, you know, in all kinds of different dishes. And where did that combination of vegetables come from? Because it's not, it's not it's Indian. Not, it's not Indian. But it's British. It's uh, because the British uh, didn't like Indian vegetables, you know, which is all sort of aubergines and gourds and okra and, you know, that kind of thing. So then they started growing their own vegetables in presidency towns and it was these vegetables really and so they left this um, which were you know eventually they were embraced by Indian people and they've left this you know one of the lasting legacies of uh, the British is actually this mix of vegetables so let's take actually I'll, I'll give you a really good example which is pao bhaji now pao bhaji is a street food which you often get in Indian restaurants as well and basically what it is is a mixed vegetables which are uh, like I said, you know, potatoes, cauliflower, carrots, green beans and peas. They all cook together and they're all kind of coarsely mashed. And then they're cooked in a with tomatoes and onions and lots of different spices. So it's a really lovely, you know, hot, pungent, absolutely delicious dish cooked with lots of butter. And it's eaten with bread which has been sorted in butter. So it's quite rich and it's quite fattening, but it's so delicious and it's hugely, hugely popular in Bombay and in other parts of India as a street mm. food. But if you look at the influence, I mean, the bread, it was British yeah. influence, it was introduced by the British and the vegetables were grown by the British. So actually, you know, the origins of this iconic dish in India is, is British. British, yeah. 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 <laughs> and the tomatoes and uh, chilies and everything, you know, they were introduced by British as well. So this is the thing I have, you know, with, when people ask me about authenticity or about authentic Indian food, I don't believe in food authenticity mm. because, you know, have, I mean, you have to, it's like how far back do you go? I mean, I, I could tell you what's authentic pao bhaji, the dish I just mentioned, which is, you know, the way I described it, that's the authentic way of cooking it. And if you added truffle oil or blue cheese in it, it's, it's not authentic. <laughs> but then again, what is authentic? Because, you know, that dish came from all this British, influenced or British ingredients yeah 
and you know like before 16th century this dish didn't exist so, so, <laughs> so it's yeah, like you know how far back do you go i mean 400 years is already old enough in a way yeah. you know okay <laughs> as we said yeah we can go back 2000 years yeah. and find something else but then things evolve all the time no exactly yeah people migrate yeah go. so you know this idea of authentic indian food is problematic i think mm-hmm. i think i mean everybody does that it's not I think uh, Italians and Greeks and French yeah. they have the same exactly. they want to save garlic cuisine yeah it's like just let it be yeah <laughs> people yeah. will eat what they need to eat yeah no that's right yeah i mean um, i think you, i don't know it's there's a thin line between innovation and bastardization <laughs> so but then you know who decides and absolutely who decides who's that taste? Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah who stays who decides you know i mean to me that tastes horrible but then someone else might like it yeah yeah <laughs> I suppose if it's a top down like dictated from someone from above to the people you have to eat this or the other way around if people like yeah normal people the masses uh, everyday people cook it and they like it and part of the everyday experience then yeah. it then it's authentic I suppose <laughs> rather than if someone says oh yeah you should you shouldn't do this or do this no yeah. no that's right here yeah. so I suppose um, the next uh, stage in the history of uh, the Indian food that curry is the introduction to Britain, right? Um, yeah, Britain and uh, other countries around the world as well. In other countries, it was either introduced by Indian indentured laborers who went to work in other countries, or it was introduced by the British because they took along curry powders and curry recipe books and just, you know, actual curries. Mm. In Britain, they came initially um, through the, the returned Indian nabobs. Um, nabobs is a British word for nawabs, mm-hmm. which is basically um, a term for district superintendent in India. And these Anglo-Indians had worked for the East India Company. They came back to Britain in the 19th century and they brought back recipes from their cooks in India and some cookery books which were either written by Indians but mostly they were written by non-Indians mm. by, you know, like by the British or by Anglo-Indian authors. They brought back um, curry powders and uh, they basically wanted to continue eating curries here like they, they were used to doing in India. The early curries were, you know, came from the returnees of, you know, yeah, East yeah. India Company. And also, you know, curries were eaten in the army as well. So, you know, army officers were used to eating them. And they were popular actually even, you know, in the time, like during the time of uh, Queen Victoria as well, mm-hmm. because she was really fond of curries. Right. So because, you know, because of the empire, they were popular in Britain or they went in and out of fashion in Britain among the British as well as the British in India. So they were popular then, but I think really the earliest curries were found through what we now call pop-ups, mm-hmm. which took place in areas like, you know, Wembley, where they had like what they call empire exhibitions. Right. Now the empire exhibitions were like um, themed around India and they had entertainment, they had like pavilions, you know, which were made in the image of like the Taj Mahal or, you know, they had snake charmers, they had jugglers, you know, they, they kind yeah. of made India into some kind of theme park and they had Indian food pop-ups and they brought over cooks from India to cook curries and they became very popular with, you know, with the British. Mm. So those were the earliest curries and um, then someone called uh, Sheikh Dean Mohammed, he opened London's first Indian restaurant in 1810. 
right. so early so 19th that century. Yeah. That was the first Indian restaurant. Uh, yeah, and that's in uh, that was in Marylebone. Mm -hmm. And he, I mean, it lasted for about a year, and it was it was decorated in this Raj theme, you know, with uh, kind of wicker furniture and potted palms and. Uh, a shisha room for smoking shisha pipes, yeah. and he had uh, he had this menu full of you know like curries which were eaten by Anglo Indians in India at the time. So right. there was koma and there was vindaloo and you know all this all this kind of stuff. That was the menu at the time. How do we know all this information? Is from reviews from newspapers of the time or? How? Yeah, no, I I know this because firstly because there was um, London's first restaurant guide it was called Regency restaurant guide or something. It was actually reprinted by the British Library in 2012. And I actually have a copy at home. And nice. It, yeah, and it's really interesting because it has restaurant reviews of restaurants which were around at the time. And the only Indian restaurant is this restaurant. And it was called Hindustani Coffee House. And the you know there's a short review of what was on the menu, what the food was like, what the decor was like. Also, there was a menu which was auctioned in 2018. The, the original menu of uh, Hindustani Coffee House, and it was sold, I think, for eight thousand five hundred pounds. Wow. Yeah, I would have done anything to get hold of that menu, you know, if, if, I, if I could have uh, afforded to buy it. I, I would have bought it actually, because I think, you know, just imagine what an interesting, you know, historical piece yeah. of document. Yeah, yeah. But that had uh, curries like koma and vindaloo and madras and, and, and so on. So the second prominent Indian restaurant. Mm was uh, Viraswamis, which is still around at the moment, but it only has two, you know, original items from the menu. I mean, it, it's changed. It's, it's kind of like a modern Indian restaurant yeah. now. Uh, but it's the oldest surviving Indian restaurant in London. But there were lots of, you know, other restaurants before then in early 20th century, which was set up by Bangladeshi sailors. Right, of course. Bang yeah, and they came from this region called Silet in what is now Bangladesh, but at the, at the time it was part of Bengal, mm. uh, because Bengal became, you know, Bengal, Pakistan and India, they were all one country. And then after the partition, there was, you know, Pakistan and Bangladesh, and then Bangladesh became, you know, separate in 1971. They were all, you know, part of the same country, so they have the same history and the food has similarities, uh, but there are differences as well. And anyway, so these sailors came from part of Bengal called Silet, the Silet region in eastern India. Yeah. And they worked on uh, British steamships in the late 19th century and early 20th century. And the conditions of working in the steamships were terrible. I mean, they worked in boiler rooms and the boilers exploded and they were poorly paid. They were really badly treated. There was lots of racism. So, you know, these poor guys, I mean, they were hardworking Bengali, strong, you know, Bengali men, hardworking, but they didn't speak English yeah. because that region is quite poor. So they weren't educated. So they started traveling to places like, you know, London, Southampton, Singapore, New York. And whenever they got the opportunity, they would just jump ship, you know, they would just disembark and then they would settle in those areas. And they didn't want to go back because, I mean, they didn't want to, you know, face that journey back. It's yeah. a perilous journey. It's either you are in a steamship working in the boiler room or you go back home in poverty and both options were yeah. <laughs> terrible. But so many people died as well. So many of the seamen died. So, you know, they didn't want to risk losing their lives. Unfortunately, you know, when they got off in London or Singapore or wherever, you know, the conditions were bad because, you know, they didn't have any money. Mm. They didn't have education. They didn't have jobs. So initially they started uh, by either, you know, begging or stealing or sweeping churchyards or selling things like, you know, curry powder or coffee or chocolate or something in pubs. Yes. Um, then some of the earliest ones got jobs working 
as dishwashers in hotels and restaurants, you know, so that was their entry point in catering. Of course, they missed home cooking, so they started cooking for themselves, really, you know. They, I mean, many of them lived in East London in boarding houses, and there was, um, and the conditions in boarding houses were really bad as well initially. But there was a guy called Mr. Ali in early 20th century, and there were all these Bangladeshi seamen who lived in the area, and of course, you know, they were working and they needed to eat. So Mr. Ali set up a, a cafe and he started serving them rice and curry. He cooked rice and curry and started serving them to these Bangladeshi sailors. And that must have been the first Bangladeshi restaurant. And initially they were just catering for, you know, the community. Yes. Then other people started copying the idea and started setting up, you know, this coffee houses which sold Korean rice yeah. to each other. Then someone opened, you know, the first one in central London, not just for Bangladeshi sailors, but, you know, just for the general British public. So they then started opening in central London and eventually in places like South Hall, you know, in West, West London as well. And the early ones catered to British customers, mm. but also to Indian students, because Indian students, you know, there were Indian students here, they miss the taste of, of course, home. yeah, yeah. And uh, there were kind of Indian, actually Indian students as well, saw a gap in the market. And after their studies were finished, they set up restaurants in, in central London as well, yeah. So there were all these kind of Bangladeshi and Indian restaurants, you know, popping up in East London and in central London. Mm. And they started getting British customers who were initially very skeptical, you know, they were not familiar with the food. They found chilies too hot, they found spices too pungent, they didn't like coriander, they didn't like garlic. So, and the, you know, these young men, young British men were not, I mean, the older British men, you know, the, the nabobs, they were used to Indian food in yeah. India. The younger British men, they weren't used to it. So, you know, the Bangladeshi seamen started diluting, if you like, the food. And also using shortcuts because you were cooking for so many people, you know, every day. So you can't really use long cooking methods which are used in traditional Indian cooking, you know, like slow cooking yeah. or layering spices or, you know, cooking onions for like 10-15 minutes or whatever, you know. Yeah. You had to use like shortcuts. So they started using all those techniques and the British customers didn't appreciate, you know, whether you gave them like traditional <laughs> food or not. So, you know, yeah. so that kind of became the norm, if you like. And they started eventually using ready-made masalas and curry pastes and curry sauces. And after initial skepticism, the British started liking Indian food or Bangladeshi Indian food. And the other thing which happened was, you know, after the Second World War, the Bangladeshi seamen started buying up derelict fish and chip shops. Mm. And they started serving Korean rice with fish and chips and with pies and sausages and, you know, like British menu. And the rice and curry were just like side note, you know, they, yeah. they weren't really part of the main menu. So just out of curiosity, you know, the British started using curry as a sauce to go with yes. the chips. Yes. And they started liking it and then they started eating it with rice. So, you know, and then it became popular. So rice and curry became popular in its own right. And then eventually it became so popular that, you know, the Bangladeshi restaurant owners they felt confident enough to discontinue fish and chips and pies and everything and then they just made all Indian menus. They introduced all Indian menus and then they eventually started serving the post-pub trade. So, you know, at, late at night there would be all these young men who just be leaving pubs and looking for something to eat. Yeah. And Indian restaurants were open, and then that's how you know Indian food became associated with drinking. Of also course. in Burswami, it is said that um, Carlsberg was uh, really popular with the with the Dutch king, 
and he sent a crate of Carlsberg to Virswami in the early 20th century and they served it to the customers. So the customers really liked, you know, the, the, the pairing of Carlsberg, lager and, and curry. And then, it, then they started asking for more. So they started this trend of, you know, drinking lager yeah, with curry. Yeah, yeah. So there are all kinds of, you know, different theories as to how the pairing of, you know, curry and lager came about. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> someone was asking me about, you know, about this the other day, that how, you know, like how do you, why, why do people end up drinking lager with curry? Because it's not necessarily the best drink. Mm. I mean, it's, you know, it's, lager is full of gas and, uh, and actually in India, you'd have, um, I mean, you've got like people of my dad's generation or uncle's generations drinking spirits, like, Whiskey and rum are more popular, and even you know I think sweet wine, Swedish wine like gewurz, I think is more. It goes more with Indian food, with spicy food. Yeah, yeah, uh, but there's this, just this tradition of drinking, yeah. especially in Britain, you know, lager with curry. So we're stuck with it, rightly or wrongly. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. But one thing, sorry, if I just go back to what we were talking about before, one mm. thing I forgot to mention was um, that the food we eat in restaurants here is um, is a Bangladeshi interpretation of Anglo-Indian food, which was served in Indian restaurants in India at the time. Wow. In North yeah. India at the time. So, because South Indian restaurants have a different history, because it started with uh, feeding pilgrims in temples. So South Indian restaurants have a different history. In Western and Eastern India, there's, people were more conservative in the old days. Um, when I talk about old days, I'm talking about early 20th century. So home cooking was um, valued and, you know, you didn't really eat out. And actually they had something called what we would now call supper clubs. So you'd have, you know, women running supper clubs and you'd go to their houses to eat. But North India has a different history because of... Uh, it's to do with uh, the Grand Trunk Road and the right. trade on the Grand Trunk Road. Yeah, yeah. So the earliest restaurants opened in North India to serve truck drivers who were travelling around the Grand Trunk Road and the traders who were travelling. So, yeah, I mean, it has, um, it has a strange history because, you know, a lot of, you know, that food has kind of Mughla influenced. It was um, interpreted by kind of Punjabi immigrants and then Punjabi Im immigrants, when they opened the first Indian restaurants in North India, they catered to the taste of Anglo-Indians who were, you know, the rich paying customers. Mm. So then that food kind of associated with restaurant cooking in India at the time. So that is what the, you know, the earliest Bangladeshi restaurants, uh, restaurateurs rather, interpreted as, you know, Indian food to serve to customers in, 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 in Britain. Yeah, yeah. So in a way, you know, the food we're eating is uh, Mughlai, Punjabi, Anglo-Indian, Bangladeshi food. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Which is, yeah, it's a... But I suppose we're eating, a, you know, a taste of history. It's a taste yeah, of history. That's, so. that's a good way to, to think of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely, I like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and lots of Indians, Indian people would say, oh, but, you know, it's not real Indian food or it's not, you know, how we make it at home. But then, you know, I think lots of Indian people as well, they grew up eating this kind of food in Britain, you know, lots of diaspora Indians. And I think it should be considered to be a cuisine in its own right. You know, it's, mm. a, it's, a, it's a, in India, they might consider it to be foreign food or, you know, like British Indian food. But it's a cuisine in its own right. You can't compare it to Indian home cooking in India or Indian home cooking even here. I think it's just a different genre altogether. Mm, mm. And I think that's, that's a good way of appreciating it. Absolutely. I think. Brilliant. And I think that's, uh, 
a nice way to end up uh, that short trip in uh, Indian <laughs> culinary history. I suppose. It's, yeah, it's quite a trip. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for this introduction, and I'm looking forward to learning a lot more about the Indian cuisine <laughs> and the story, the story behind it. Um, yeah, so thank you for inviting me. <laughs> You're welcome. It's good to talk to yeah. you. <laughs> Great. And your book is The Philosophy of Curry, yeah. out by the British Library. And you can find it everywhere, I suppose. Yeah, it's available everywhere. You can buy it from the British Library shop or you can buy it online. And I think it's available actually all over the world now. Mm. Great. Which is really good, yeah. Like curry. Exactly, yeah. Like curry, the book is available everywhere. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. And this is it, a short introduction to the history of Indian food. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Sejil and learned um, a few tips and techniques on uh, the philosophy of uh, Indian food. And of course, uh, I hope we dispelled some popular myths about uh, curry and Indian cuisine and made you hungry for some spicy or not so spicy food. Thank you. I've been Thomas Dinas and this was the Delicious Legacy podcast. Remember... Uh, I'm on Twitter as The Delicious Legacy or on Instagram or you'll find me on YouTube as well with videos uh, about ancient recipes. Plus, uh, the podcast is on Spotify, Apple Pods, Google Pods, uh, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Amazon and so on. So help me by leaving some reviews and uh, rate the podcast. And of course, uh, if you have any questions, don't hesitate to contact me. Or if you have any subjects subjects that you want me to cover, again, just uh, pop me a line. And of course, uh, don't forget, if you want exclusive content, such as the whole interview with Sejal about the history of Indian food, uh, come and join me on Patreon from $3 a month. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.